Well, you know, Pastor Brad was right. Everything he said, he, he, he summarized it very well, uh, is true. And as of uh, just uh, two weeks ago, Monday, um, we were, I received the official offer, which we accepted at a church in Pullman. So, yeah, I was remark- remarking to my wife this morning that uh, 15 months ago, we were, uh, you know, we had this vision for where we wanted to go and... We can hardly believe uh, how things are coming together, but it's, uh, it's also quite a flurry of activity. And uh, this church, and Pastor Brad in particular, and uh, a lot of other people have been a real intimate part of that over the last year. So my job this morning is to talk about the church. We've spent the last 10 weeks, if you can believe it, this is the 10th installment of this series we've been working on, and, and, and I've been assigned the church Now, the the difficult thing about a topical survey, as we've been doing this summer, as we've talked about different things we believe, is the Bible isn't necessarily a book of doctrine, right? The Bible is not a book of teachings. You know, there are parts that are like that, but really, more than anything, the Bible is a collection of writings that, that people have written to, to tell other people about God. And so some of the things that were written um, are written like stories. And, they're, they're, and they're, they're thoroughly true, thoroughly accurate, but they're written like a story. Other things are written to people to, to help encourage them or explain uh, certain things or address a certain situation. Those things are true. So, no, so despite whatever is written in here, we believe that the writers were inspired. God was intimately involved in directing what they were writing, what they wanted to say. And the ultimate purpose was that the people who, who wrote in this Bible, the, the collection of letters we have, were to help people come to know and understand God better. And so, uh, as you read through here, of course, you see different themes. Despite the fact that people wrote for different reasons and at different times, when you read through it, you start to see similar themes. The same kind of truths pop up as you read through. And so you start to collect these themes, and these themes form what we call doctrines. And so this morning, as we talk about the church, the teaching of the church, I'd like to start in something that Jesus said. Now, as we do this, we're going to have to do a little navigating. Okay? We're, there's going to be times where we've got to do a little bit of unpacking so that we can, uh, at least in my view, understand, I think, uh, what God wants us to know about the church. So let's start. Let's, let's start to do that by looking at Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bible here, uh, we're going to start in the first book of the the New Testament, which is uh, the the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapter 16, we're going to read a paragraph that starts at verse 13 and goes to to verse 20. Um, And I'm, I'm going to read that now. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? 
And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What do you, or who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Okay, now strictly speaking, this passage is not about the church. This passage is about the disciples of Jesus coming to a point where they finally acknowledged the truth of who Jesus really was. You might have heard of the great uh, commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You may may have heard, heard of the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. But here we have something called the great confession. You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. And it's on this confession that Jesus talks about the church for the first time. Once Peter makes this affirmation, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. So I'd like to stay on the fairway of this passage and not get caught up in the rough. In other words, I want to make sure we we uh, focus on the main point of the passage because there's some interesting details in here that make for some thought and discussion. But I want to focus on the main point. And the main point of this passage here is that the real Jesus builds the real church. The real Jesus builds the real church. You see... uh, this, there's a pretty obvious theme here that relates to who Jesus is. He starts by asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, you might think I'm going to go off a little into the rough, but I think it's important to explain a little bit of what the Son of Man means. You see, the Son of Man is the, an, an interesting title that Jesus uses for himself. Over and over, we read about Jesus either referring to or talking about this Son of Man. And And it's pretty interesting about why he would use this title. In short, Jesus is, uses, this, uses this title to both reveal things about himself, but also conceal it from others. Jesus uses the title Son of Man to avoid falling into the expectations that other people have for what they think the Messiah should be. Let me explain. When Jesus came on the scene, 
there was a lot of expectation that God's chosen one would, would come and deliver the nation of Israel out from under the oppression of the Roman government. Both before the time that Jesus was born and even after he had ascended into heaven, this messianic expectation was very, very high. And so rather than come out and say, Behold, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. Jesus referred to himself as this Son of Man. He maintained a certain mystery about himself, a certain je ne sais quoi that both drew people to himself but also kept other people asking, Who is this guy? It's a little bit the same today. A great question to ask somebody is what they think about Jesus. What a person says about Jesus will tell you a lot about them. So by using this unfamiliar title, the Son of Man, Jesus was both revealing things about himself, but he was also concealing it from others. So he would say things like, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And through that expression, Jesus was revealing that he was God. Another time he would say, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This statement revealed his mission. Another time he would say the Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This statement revealed his ethic, one of uh, humble uh, servitude and what we call the substitutionary sacrifice when he would give his life on behalf of guilty sinners. Another example, Jesus said to the main religious ruler of the day, he says, uh, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And this statement revealed that there's a coming day that Jesus would return in great power and glory. And so all of these statements, Jesus is both revealing things about himself but also concealing it from others. Some people were open to accepting his claims and others were hardened. They actually planned how they might put him to death. And so that's why he's asking this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And the answer reveals the people's ideas. Some people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, on one hand, each of these answers has some kind of biblical basis. They're, they're kind of partially true. But people who, who were answering in this way about Jesus were more wrong than right. You see, Jesus wasn't just continuing the ministry of John the Baptist, telling people to repent and, get, and prepare for a great coming one. He was the coming one. Jesus wasn't just a powerful prophet like Elijah who could do miracles, or he wasn't just a doom and gloom weeping prophet like Jeremiah who said the end is near. Jesus was God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And as one writer puts it, Peter's confession here affirms that Jesus is the one climactic figure 
in whom God's purpose was finally being accomplished. Still another writer adds that the word Messiah, the Hebrew equivalent to Christ, refers in the Old Testament to prophets and priests and kings in the sense that all of them were anointed with oil. This anointing symbolized a consecration of ministry by God. Jesus Christ, as the anointed one, would be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. With his dramatic confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter declares his faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. So this Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is the real Jesus. And it's this Jesus who's building the church. This identity is central to what Jesus means when he says, and I tell you, that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, promises to build His church upon the acknowledgement of who He really is. So what's a church? Well, the word church actually means a gathering, an assembly, a group called out, It's worth mentioning that the original word here is the word ekklesia. And a dictionary that I use has this to say about this word. The term ekklesia was in common usage for several hundred years before the Christian era and was used to refer to an assembly of persons. But watch this. Constituted by well-defined membership. In other words, ecclesia could be used as a gathering or an assembly of any group of people. But those people always had something in common. Something that joined them together. And what is the membership for Christians who gather as a church? A true understanding of who Jesus really is. God's Messiah. God's anointed one, the very Son of God, anointed to do a redeeming work that only God could do, to die as a substitute for guilty sinners and come back to life to offer forgiveness, healing, and eternal life. Membership into the real church starts with knowing the real Jesus. Now, the scary thing is that understanding who Jesus really is requires divine intervention. It's God's work. We ultimately rely on the supernatural work of God to come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not only do we see this here in this passage where uh, Jesus tells Peter that his confession was revealed by the Father, But this thought is affirmed elsewhere. So coming to this true knowledge of Jesus is a personal and profound work of God. But one of the ways that we know that this work has occurred is by what a person says. 
What a person says about Jesus gives a pretty good indication of how that person stands in relation to God. A proclamation that one has come to personally know Jesus and to accept Him as Savior and Lord or sometimes how we say here to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life indicates that you've become a member of the believing community, the church. And so this leads to a definition of of the church which is that the church is the community of all true believers. The church is the community of all true believers. So when Jesus said he would build his church, he meant he was going to build a community of true believers, followers that truly know him. And most of the New Testament was written to either explain Jesus or to encourage his followers. In fact, most of the New Testament was written to Christian communities, what we call local churches. See, the church is both invisible and visible. It's invisible in the sense that that it's a spiritual membership of every true believer at all times, both living and dead, all across the globe. But the church is visible when communities of believers gather together at a particular location. And whatever is true about the invisible big church is true about the visible small local church. So we're going to turn a little corner here and look at what I've called points to consider in your notes. You'll notice references throughout those notes that come from the book of Ephesians. And that's just for simplicity's sake. I could have chosen from a number of New Testament books for this, but I just stuck to Ephesians. Now, one of the points I'd like to make is the church is a community, not a building. The church of Jesus Christ is not a physical building. This is not God's house. There are metaphors which the writers of the Bible use to describe the church. And one of those is a building, as we'll see here in a minute. But I want us to understand that the church is a community. But I'd also like to look at three metaphors that are used in the book of Ephesians that describe the church. And one of those is a temple. A temple, a dwelling place of God. Let's turn, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you'd like to join me, there's... Uh, I'm going to be going back and forth within the book of Ephesians to point out a couple of things. I'd like to start at chapter 2 and verse 19. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing and he's, he's describing the effects of the work and ministry of Christ. And he says, consequently, chapter 2, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives 
by the Spirit. So I said the church isn't a building, and I meant it's not a physical building. The church is a spiritual building being built up into a holy temple because God lives in us. The church is a temple, a dwelling place in which God lives. Now just think of that. God is here. We are His temple. Now I think that's a pretty awesome thought. And the Apostle Paul often refers to this as a reason for purity among God's people. Because being God's temple motivates us to want to keep our hearts and our minds clean and undefiled, not to grieve His presence. We must not forget that God is here when we come together. But we also see the church as a body. Turn over to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 22. God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Now, I think the body metaphor here for the church helps us understand how personally connected we are with Jesus. You know, before the Apostle Paul became the Apostle Paul, he hated Christians and he persecuted them badly. And then he received a vision from Jesus and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting them? He said, why are you persecuting me? The church is the, is the body of Christ. Every true follower of Jesus is intimately connected with Jesus. But even more than our connection with Jesus, we're also, whether we like it or not, connected with each other. Every, uh, as we've come to be connected to each other as a body, the Apostle Paul says somewhere else, that this body has many parts. And all the many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. There should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. So the church is a body related to Jesus as, as the head and to each other as members. But finally, I'd like to point out that the church is also Christ's beloved. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, there's a, a, a longer section here that starts at verse 21. And on the surface, you might think it has to do with husbands and wives. But listen carefully to how central Jesus is in this passage. Chapter 5, verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. The church is Christ's beloved that he nurtures and cares for. The love and care that Jesus shows to his people, the church is the same love that inspires husbands and wives to love one another in the way that they themselves have been loved. We do what we do because Christ does it for us. So the church is a temple, the church is a body, the church is beloved. These are just a few ways to help us understand how special the church is. As a community of true believers, the church enjoys the personal and intimate presence of God. We live in relation to, with other members. Just like parts of a physical body, more than this, we live in relation to the head, direct communion with Jesus through his word, through his spirit. And through this relation, we experience Christ's love, the nurture and care that he so graciously provides. And as we come together as a community in this particular place, as a local church, We enjoy all of these privileges and we're admonished and even commanded to live these things out as a community, as a body. So we've seen that Jesus, uh, the real Jesus builds a real church. What a person thinks about Jesus is the decisive factor because the church is a community of true believers. This is what the church is, but why does it matter? Why is it important to know what the real church is? Well, I'd like to remind us this morning that the church has has responsibilities that have been true for all of God's people at all times and all places. In fact, there are three particular purposes of the church that are very important for us to remember. First, one of the most important purposes of the church is worship. Worship. Again, now uh, we're in Ephesians. I'm going to flip to chapter 1. And Paul makes an, a statement here in uh, verse 12. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Our purpose is to exist for the praise of his glory. Members of the Christian community exist for the praise of God's glory. Trinity Baptist Church exists for the praise of God's glory. 
And, and this relates to every part of our life. Whether we're at home, whether we're here on Sunday, we exist for the praise of God's glory. And what does that look like? Well, read chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians and that'll give you an idea. But I will say this. It affects what you think and how you think. What you say and how you say it. It affects what you do and how you do it. It affects everything. Existing for the praise of God's glory touches every part of our life. And that leads to the second purpose, really, of the church, which is edification. You don't hear that word very often. Edification. It means building up. And uh, uh, we see this in, in chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 11, that uh, as a church, we are to build each other up. We read in chapter 4, verse 11, that Christ gave uh, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I'm going to jump to verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Life in the church is much more than attending the weekly gathering on Sunday. Life in the church means that each part does its work. Now, it's not always that obvious how we can contribute to the building up of the church. But one of the things we've worked hard here at Trinity is to help people uh, have a variety of choices that you can start with. So I'd go so far as to say that if you're not serving in some way, then you're really not part of the community. To be part of the community means that you're living in relation to other people. And that means serving to build them up. Finally, the church is God's means for reaching out to an unbelieving world with the gospel. So our third purpose is outreach. Outreach. We see again here Uh, in Ephesians, I'm going to look at chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So how did he do this? Well, it's interesting, at the end of this letter, uh, in chapter 6, We read at verse 19, Paul says, Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Okay, now I know the Apostle Paul had a special mission, a commission to preach the gospel. But I would suggest that the church has inherited that mission. And so we don't always know what to say. 
Reaching out to a lost and unbelieving world can be scary and unnerving. But it's not a, that's no reason to be complacent. It's just a reason that we need more prayer, as even the Apostle Paul needed. The church is a community that seeks to influence the lost so that others may come to truly know the true Jesus. So if the real Jesus is building the real church, what's our role? What's your role? For starters, if you have questions about who the real Jesus is, then I invite you to talk with me afterward or ask to meet with one of the pastors. God is continually working to make Jesus known. And if he's working in your life, then, then we want to be a part of that. If you're part of this believing community, then you, then you have a responsibility to join the work of Jesus. For most of us who are not farmers, summer is a time of relaxing and vacationing and recreation. But I, well, and except if you were on the, the last week's youth retreat. You, you guys worked hard. Good job with that. But I would suggest for the rest of us, it's time to start thinking about getting to work. Jesus is working. He, he doesn't stop. And we have both the privilege and the responsibility to join what he's doing to build the church. So I encourage you to find your place in this body, in this community. We ask for three investments from members of this community. One is that we invest our Sunday morning. This service right now is just one part of a full Sunday morning. We saw in the announcements how much it takes to, to do what we do on a Sunday morning. There are many ways to serve and many ways that we'll need serving, especially as we approach the end of summer and the beginning of a ministry year. Second, we ask that you serve in a ministry. Again, there are many ways to serve, uh, some you may not even be aware of. So once again, in the coffee corner, there's an impact team uh, table that has lots of ideas. And so third, we ask that you join a growth group. These groups are the ideal way to get connected and develop deeper relationships within this believing community. There'll be more information on growth groups in the weeks to come, so be on the lookout for that. In closing, I just want to say that Jesus Christ loved the church and continues to nurture and care for it. May we love the church, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. May we join the real Jesus in building his church, both here and throughout this valley. Let's pray. Father, we've just touched the tip of the iceberg, I think, when we discuss your church. 